DW, Living Planet. Hey everyone, Charlie here. It's a bit noisy where I am at the moment, but I thought I'd record the intro to this week's show from the pub. Not just any pub though, but a Scottish pub, where I'm having a Scottish malt whiskey. I don't normally drink on the job. I don't even normally drink whiskey. But it is relevant for our first story today. Promise. This is Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. Cheers. If you've ever seen a commercial for Scottish whisky on the telly, you may have noticed they tend to feature music like this, plus breathtaking natural scenery, spectacular waterfalls, the highlands' rugged mountainscapes and peatlands that stretch on forever. The thing is, though, that last landscape I mentioned, the peatlands, they're being exploited to make some of the most popular Scottish whiskies around. Not this one, though. I made sure it was peat-free. Because peat, which is that spongy, crumbly soil found in bogs that holds a lot of carbon dioxide, it's used to give some whiskies a distinct flavour. But taking it out of the ground has huge climate consequences. Though some whisky distilleries say that these days they're doing it in a sustainable way. But is that actually possible? David Ayr and Katarina Peetz did us all a favour and travelled to the Scottish island of Isla to find out. After a few bangs with a metal hammer, the wooden plug seals the cask. Now the whisky is set to mature for several years. These casks have previously been used for Madeira wine, allowing a fruity flavour to settle into the whisky. But here at Kilholman Distillery on the Scottish island of Isla, the most important ingredient to the flavour is something else. Peat. The small Hebridean island with its nine distilleries is famous for its peated whisky. Kilholman dubs itself a farm distillery. Barley is grown right across the gate, water comes from a nearby dam, and also the peat used on the farm is cut close by. Derek Scott is responsible for cutting the peat. He makes some room in his 4x4 car to take us to the bog. There's a hunting rifle. Yeah. That's part of the job as well? Hey, sort of. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh... Derek has several jobs at Kilholman. Besides his peat obligation, he manages deer on the estate and oversees the bottling hall at the distillery. After a few minutes' drive, we arrive where the journey of peated whiskey begins. So we're surrounded by peat banks. I mean, everywhere you look around Isla, there's straight lines, and there's no straight lines in nature. <laughs> These lines are remnants of decade-long peat cutting. So what you see here from this point, you can see the width. That's roughly the width I'm cutting and the length is so what I've got here on this stack here is just over one year's one season's mm -hmm. worth of cutting. Derek points at a pile of peat briquettes that are the size of a pub counter. 
He emphasizes that cutting turf by hand is less harmful to the environment than machine cutting because the surface layer is reattached in order to reduce scarring of the bog. What is more, Kilhoman only needs a small amount of peat in their kiln house, he says. The little trench next to Derek indeed looks harmless, unless you look at damaged peat bogs from a carbon perspective. Emma Hinchliffe is the director of the UK-based peatland conservation program of the IUCN, the International Union for Conservation of Nature. She emphasizes the important role peatlands play in fighting climate change as carbon storages. More than 20% of Scottish landscape is covered by peat bogs. But unfortunately, around 80% of those peatlands have been damaged through sort of land use and development, wind farms, forestry, drainage for agriculture and also extraction for horticultural peat and for whiskey as well. More than half of the extracted peat is used in horticulture. That's why there is an ongoing discussion about banning the sale of horticultural peat in the UK. The whiskey industry is currently responsible for around 4% of the peat extracted in the UK and 6% of extraction in Scotland. Extracting peat has a negative environmental impact. When a bog's water table is lowered, all the organic material above starts to decompose and releases massive amounts of CO2. However, Emma Hinchliffe differentiates between large-scale machine cutting and less harmful methods. When it's done traditionally in a very small, localized way for hand cutting, they tend to replace the vegetation back on the layer that they've exposed, so you're not exposing these large bare areas of peat. So in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, it's maybe slightly better to hand cut than it is machine cut because you're not stripping that surface of vegetation off, which is what's kind of helping to keep that carbon locked within the peat and helping to keep it, it moist. In most cases, you would want peat well dried for burning. But back at Kilhoman Distillery, the peat is being soaked again. Marketing manager Peter Wills pulls a wet briquette out of a wooden water bucket and explains the idea behind it. The reason we soak it in water is so that it's so like any light wood. It soaks up the water, it burns much slower, the smoke is thicker, and that's what we want. So that's why before we use it, we'll soak some of it in there. We use some of the dry stuff to get the heat and the sort of heart of the fire burning strong. And then after that, we'll use the, the uh, peat that's soaked in water. So we'll, we'll go in the wall. Peter Will's parents founded the distillery in 2005. He wears a shirt and a grey pullover. His red beard is neatly trimmed. As he shows us around the facilities, Peter emphasizes the distillery's traditional and very locally rooted approach. Sourcing peat from other parts of Scotland is not an option for Kilhoman. Uh, we'd like to be a local, certainly on Isla. Whether it's different places on Isla, we're not too bothered, but on Isla, it's a different peat here than it is on the mainland. So you'll get a different character of whiskey, different style, different flavour. So for us, it's important, as I said, you know, place is really important to us, uh, and that's same with the peat. It affects the flavour and the character, which we want to be an Isla whiskey as, as much as possible, really. But ecologist Emma Hinchliffe disagrees. I personally don't see any evidence for that, because peatlands, by their very nature, are hugely, hugely heterogeneous um, and really, really variable. So even within a very localised peat bog, because the vegetation is made up of different little plant communities that exist in wetter and drier bits, as you cut down through that peat, you know, every few centimetres blocks of peat are going to be different in their sort of characteristics and chemistry. Using peat that has to be extracted anyway, for example on wind farm construction sites, could be a method that would leave other bogs unharmed. 
When it comes to peated whiskey, scientists have been discussing a complete substitute to peat with similar flavors. They suggest to simply burn sphagnum moss, which is the main ingredient for peat box in Britain. However, most distilleries want to stick to the traditional way of making peated whiskey. The umbrella organization Scotch Whiskey Association has been addressing the ecological impact of the industry in their sustainability strategy. The industry is committing itself to extracting peat responsibly and to conserving and restoring Scotland's peatlands by 2035. Emma Hinchliffe and the IOC and Peatland Programme are supporting those principles within the strategy. But the ecologist stresses that there are quite big differences between distilleries when it comes to their commitment to sustainability. So how much of the dedication is rather greenwashing? So it'd be kind of unfair to say greenwashing across the board. But I think, yeah, certainly certainly some distilleries more than others are playing into that, that, that ballpark, really. Back on the whiskey island of Isla, the Calhoun distillery has taken some measures to reduce emissions. Others are still in the planning phase. Heat exchangers, solar panels and wind turbines are supposed to lower their fossil energy demand. Peter Wills prefers these small steps to carbon offsetting schemes. I think we can plant lots of trees on our ground and that would offset what we do, but you're not really solving the problem. You're just kind of pushing it down the road by planting trees and saying you're carbon neutral. So for we'd rather do things in the background like solar panels that can actually power things, using biofuel, researching into things like that, rather than just offsetting it with, with other trees and things. At the end of the day, producing alcohol and burning fuel for that has negative impacts on the climate per se, he admits. But it comes down to the customer's decision. But you should get a real fresh, light, fresh taste. According to Peter Wills and the experience from visitors at the distillery, sustainability plays only a small part in that. Peat is one of the issues. They ask more so than overall carbon footprint. Uh, peat seems to be one that's, that's got more, um, I guess, coverage or opinion. But yeah, very rarely do we get asked about it, um, which is interesting because a lot of industries, it's a big, big topic. It is in whiskey, but it's, the consumer isn't, doesn't seem to be making a choice on the shelf by carbon footprint, I don't, in our view. An informed customer's decision is only possible with knowledge about the complex connections of peat extraction and the production of food and drinks. IOCN Director Emma Henschliff. I think that the industry's got a responsibility really to ensure the highest standards of environmental care during the operation when they're extracting peat to minimize the impact that they're having, but also to ensure the highest standards of restoration and going a little bit above and beyond really to kind of repair some of the, the past damage and a bit of the legacy that the industry's had on our peatlands. And especially if they're looking to kind of to maintain that relationship, that branding, that marketing with this healthy Scottish landscape. I think the duty is there, really. Katarina Pitts and David Eyre with that story out of Scotland. Moving south in the UK now, we head from the Isle of Isla to a place near Manchester in England, from one kind of watering hole to another. This time to a special kind of cafe that's doing its bit to help reduce the number of fixable items we throw away, 
which in the EU alone is estimated to be more than 35 million tonnes every year. In recent years, though, thousands of repair cafes, like the one we're about to visit, have been popping up all over the world. Reporter Lash Bavanga had a broken toaster that he was pretty sad about, so he went to check out the cafe. This community hall in the town of Marple is transformed once a month into a hub for repairs of everything from clothes to furniture and electronics. I have brought an item myself that I was thinking of throwing out, but this place might give it new life. Hi, I'm Kirsten Burgess. Um, I volunteer and help with the Marple Repair Cafe. When people come here, they bring small things that need repaired, like sewing, um, toys, um, electronics, things like that. And we have a range of volunteers who have skills, like electricians, uh, woodworkers. We've got somebody who's got a 3D printer that can print out little bits. So I've got a brand new toaster that worked for a few days and then it stops working. And I've been assigned a volunteer. Let's see how it goes. Initially, I was a GP for about 25 years. But I've always been interested in gadgets and technology and um, love taking things apart and even when I can't put them back together. Richard Gain is the man with the 3D printer and skills in electronics. Could he be the one to resurrect my broken toaster? Um, so I would normally start with the plug, check the fuse, make sure that hasn't blown. It looks like this investigation might take some time, so I decide to talk to some of the others who have turned up with defective items here today. What, what have you brought in here to, uh, to, right. to be fixed well, today? This, this a magnifying lamp goes in here. Right. And the little plastic housing is um, broken. So... Uh, is this the first time you've been to the repair company? No, I brought uh, a bread maker which they couldn't fix, so sadly, but um, I just think it's a brilliant idea, isn't it? To recycle rather than uh, put in landfill. I have brought two lamps that um, have not worked for quite a while. <laughs> one of them, this, this one that, that uh, angles and moves, is a, one of a pair that have as bedside lamps, so unfortunately it's just not worked for a long, long time. So they look quite old. They've sort of got sentimental value? I guess so, yes. I've had them a good while, yeah. I don't want to throw them out. They're too good. During World War II, people in Britain and elsewhere in Europe got used to repairing things, or make, do and mend, as the slogan went in many public information films, like this one. Well, when it comes to clothes, make, do and mend needn't be at all unfashionable. Listen to what you can do. Mrs. Clark made her frock from a pair of her husband's old plus four trousers and half a yard of new material. Today, of course, unlike during wartime, we have endless access to resources. But the spirit of make, do and mend is slowly being resurrected in places like my local repair cafe. And it is far from the only one. My name is Martina Posma. I'm founder and director of the Repair Café International Foundation. In 2009, I was a journalist at the time and I wrote about sustainability and waste prevention. I wanted to actively try to change people's behaviour. 
Repair Cafe founder Martina Potsmar started out wanting to find out why we create so much waste. A big reason we no longer do repairs, which used to be part of life. It's because many new products are so cheap and so available that it's more attractive to buy a new item in many cases than to have an old item repaired. So I thought to make it attractive, it has to be cheaper than than buying a new product. And the only option then is to make it volunteer work. 14 years ago, in October 2009, the very first repair cafe was held in Amsterdam. So what did Martina Potsma expect? I thought it could work because repairing can be fun. And when you fix something, you feel good, you feel proud. And work it did. There are now nearly 3,000 repair cafes worldwide, from Alaska to Honolulu, Mumbai to New Zealand. Each month they fix more than 51,000 products. Here in the UK alone, there are now more than 460 repair cafes like this one. One of the secrets behind this success is that anyone can set up a repair cafe with the help of a starter kit available in five different languages, which you can download download from the Repair Café website. Now, I think it's time for me to go back and check how Richard is getting on with my toaster. Is it still a mystery? No, um, this was soldered onto the main board and, and it's blown. It's a fuse on the main board? Yeah, it was soldered across there. It works? Yeah, the light's on. It's getting hot. Brilliant. I can have toast again. You can. I'll put all the screws back. Bearing in mind that it's hot now. (laughs) Well, that saved one working toaster from ending up in landfill. Now, the EU is taking steps to save more toasters, and much besides, of course. The Union's Circular Economy Plan, which was adopted in 2020, aims to prevent waste and to keep resources in the EU economy for as long as possible. Repair cafes like this one fit neatly into that plan. And on the individual level, it makes you feel good knowing you are doing your little bit for the future of the planet. Lars Bevanga, DW, at the Repair Café in Marple, Manchester. You're listening to Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back in a moment. Don't drink the milk. Weird name for a podcast, right? But it will all make sense, I promise. And no, it's not a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. The arguments of homeopathy are based on, like, sand, and the sand was pouring through my fingers. I'm Rachel Stewart, and for this new podcast from DW, I'm travelling around Europe, tracing the backstories of objects, ideas and movements that you know well. But maybe you never really stopped to think how these things got to you. Condoms are known as French letters in the 19th century. Syphilis is the French disease, but in France it's the Italian disease. Join us to follow the strange journeys of these everyday things and see how they change shape as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. The less appealing the passport seems, the more dodgy stuff is probably going on. And yes, we're picking the juiciest stories, ones with a little mystery or drama along the way. We've got a lot to explore. Colonialism. Migration. Alternative medicine. Digital revolutions. Actual revolutions. And even some edible or rather drinkable stuff too. 
Tangy. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts. In the last bit of today's show, we're crossing the Atlantic to the state of Georgia in the US, where Hyundai is busy building a giant electric vehicle plant just outside the port city of Savannah. The Republican state has spent more money on this investment than any other in history. More than $5 billion US dollars. In doing so, the Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, is joining a growing trend of climate-skeptic politicians that are keen to cash in on the green economy. Jennifer Collins with this report by Yulia Kastein. It's another busy day on this building site, about 30 kilometres or 18 miles west of Savannah in the US state of Georgia. Diggers shift mountains of sand and earth as hundreds of construction workers rush around between dozens of towering cranes. Korean car maker Hyundai is building a massive electric vehicle plant at the site. Hyundai project manager Chris Smith points out a huge metal scaffolding a short distance away. He says this is where the factory's production line is being built. It'll be one kilometre long. If everything goes to plan, up to 300,000 electric cars a year will start rolling off the site in 2025 and straight onto the North American market. In total, the company is investing more than $5 billion. That's around 4.7 billion euros. It's the largest economic development deal in the state's history, Smith says, as he walks back to his trailer office, a pleasantly cool space that provides relief from the hot Georgia sun. Hyundai began searching for a suitable location for its new plant in January 2022. Just four months later, they found what they were looking for, partly thanks to Georgia's Republican government, which welcomed the car maker with open arms. Here's Chris Smith. The Georgia team itself, um, um, the JDA, Joint Development Authority, the state of Georgia, and, and uh, their team has been absolutely fantastic. They've been great partners. We certainly saw that during the site selection process, that cohesiveness, um, as well as um, their willingness to assist this project. Hyundai will end up paying just a dollar for the site, which is the size of 1,000 soccer pitches, as long as it keeps its promise to create 8,100 jobs here. The facility will have highway access, and costs for building an access road, clearing the site, and installing water and electricity will be carried by the Savannah Economic Development Authority. As part of its efforts to attract Hyundai, the state has also pledged to give the car maker $1.8 billion in tax breaks. It's a good deal for the region says Savannah Economic Development Authority head, Trip Tollison. This is the most revolutionary thing to come in the automobile world since the Model T, right, or the combustible engine. So we're really dedicated to building a great ecosystem so that electric vehicles can not only be manufactured in Georgia, but everything that comes with it can also flourish. And I think that by 2035, practically every household is going to have at least one electric vehicle. And so why not, why not be a player in that environment? Many Republicans in Georgia share Tollison's view, but they're not necessarily concerned with fighting climate change. The lawmakers are looking at the economic potential in this new high-tech industry. One of them is Carter Infinger, an elected official in Bryan County, where the Hyundai site is located. He explains how important these well-paying jobs will be for Georgia, where the average per capita income in 2021 was just $34,000. People are going to come from probably 90 miles away to work at this plant. I mean, th- these jobs, these jobs are going to start out at 58 to $60,000. 
Um, you go through the training program. So really, it created a lot of opportunity for kids that maybe aren't college bound. You know, people are looking for jobs that they're not interested in, you know, going to college. They can start a job making 58 to 60,000. We're really is unprecedented in our area. But not everyone in Bryan County is happy about Hyundai's car plant. Terrible. There's nothing good going to come out of it, I don't think. It's ruined our community. This used to be a quiet, beautiful community. That's Reese. He's 55. He doesn't want to give a surname. He's filling up his big pickup truck at a local gas station, just a few miles south of the construction site, in the searing midday heat. He says a forest near his house was cut down to make way for the factory. And he thinks e-cars are part of a larger Democratic Party agenda. I don't think that plant's going to start making money until the American government makes people start driving electric vehicles. And I think that's what the plan is with the, uh, with the Obama and Biden administration. Reese thinks talk of climate change is exaggerated. The earth, I mean, the earth is not in that bad a shape right now. Those, those scientists that are saying that are telling lies, in my personal opinion. I don't believe all of the climate change. I don't think that it's in that much of a, a catastrophe shape like they're saying it is. Reese is unhappy with Republican State Governor Brian Kemp and his support for investment in e-mobility. But in a rare moment of bipartisan agreement, Savannah's Democratic Mayor, Van Johnson, welcomes the move. And he blames climate change for recent extreme weather in the US. You, when you look at the types of storms that have hit us over the last several years um, and the declarations that have had to be made, um, you know, the governor is very clear that it's climate change. now. Um, his politics may not allow him to say it is. Um, we all know what it is. Johnson says the factory could provide chances for economic growth, but he also worries about the challenges it will bring. Savannah is already suffering from a shortage of affordable housing and will have to invest more in infrastructure with the new factory. At the same time, the city won't directly benefit from tax revenue generated by it. Even so, Johnson thinks Hyundai could make it easier for the people of Savannah to switch to electric vehicles. The city wants to run on 100% renewable energy by 2050. Hopefully having a plant this close will help incentivize the uh, charging infrastructure in town where it's easier for people to get that, get vehicles charged, which, which helps us. Georgia is now home to around 35 projects in the electric mobility sector which, according to state officials, will bring in around $23 billion in investments. One of those projects is a battery recycling facility run by Ascend Elements. At its plant near Atlanta, the company extracts precious materials like lithium, cobalt and graphite from old car batteries, as well as from the waste of a nearby battery factory. The plan is to process that material at a second site, just a few hundred kilometres further north in the state of Kentucky so it can be used to make new e-car batteries. Roger Lynn is the company's vice president. We invented a way to uh, make the material more sustainably than traditional methods and do it in a way that uh, can reduce carbon footprint, reduce energy consumption, and also not suffer from any lack of performance. Ascend Elements plant in Georgia receives financial support from the state's Republican government. In Kentucky, it gets federal funding. But Roger Lynn says it's all about location. If you look at a map of the U.S., there is a bit of a, a, a battery belt forming throughout the Midwest and the southeastern part of the country, and we're very, very centrally located, and so uh, very much part of the ecosystem there. 
Lynn says even though Republicans and Democrats have a different take on climate change and the economy, both are happy to see companies like Ascend Elements prosper. The business has created 500 jobs so far. So I think the attraction that we have that is unique is that it's a very uh, bipartisan attraction. So we have ability to not only help with uh, proliferation of EVs and to help with the environmental impact of the whole operation, but we're also helping to establish a stronger domestic supply chain for these critical minerals in order to have a very robust domestic industry in lithium-ion batteries in EVs, which predominantly has uh, been dominated by Asian companies, notably China. We have to build this infrastructure here in the United States. And so I think a lot of the Republican leadership sees the value in that. Bryan County official Carter Infinger plans to buy the first electric Hyundai to drive off the Savannah factory production line in 2025. Not to help tackle climate change, but to support their major investment in the local economy. It's going to be, it's going to be great for our community. That report from Julia Castine was told by Jennifer Collins. And that's all for Living Planet this week. Thank you so much for listening. Before I go today, though, I do have one request. We at Living Planet are looking for listener feedback as we make some changes to the show. So if you're keen to have your say and you're happy to participate in a short interview, please fill out our survey, which you can find underneath the latest episodes on our website, dw.com environment, or via our episodes posted on our DW Podcasts YouTube channel. My name is Charlie Shields. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. Listener.